This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This edition is produced in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. My guest today is Robin Marie Averbach, a writer, activist, and teacher at California State University, Chico. Her book, Liberalism is Not Enough, Race and Poverty in Postwar Political Thought, published by the University of North Carolina Press, is our topic today. In a historical examination of post-war liberalism, Averbeck powerfully shows how racist capitalism is at the heart of liberal thought. Through ideological-laden invocations of pluralism, the culture of poverty, and faith in the workings of democratic institutions, liberals shared with conservatives support for individualistic and racist social order. Demonstrating concern for poverty embodied in the vision of the great society, Liberals attempted to effectively deny the issue of race for African Americans. Attention to poverty turned to finding an explanation in the pathological makeup of poor blacks and the overarching culture of poverty that became identified with urban environments. After supporting civil rights legislation and community action programs funded by the federal government, Liberal thinkers were able to deny structural racism and capitalist inequality, setting fire to radical resistance. The liberal ideology of white supremacy continues to manifest itself in the mass incarceration of African Americans and the weakening of the welfare state. Averbeck demonstrates how the failure to confront the political and social structures that produce inequality stand in the way of true liberation for all Americans. Here is my conversation with Robin Averbeck. Now, let me introduce you to the author, Robin Marie Averbeck. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we talk about your book, tell us something about yourself, uh, your background, and how you came to write, Liberalism is Not Enough. Well, I wrote this book, uh, branching off of my dissertation, which I got uh, at UC Davis. Before that, I was at UC Santa Barbara for my BA, or excuse me, San Diego. And um, before that, I came from a really small town in Northern California called Georgetown, often confused with the drastically different uh, D.C. city. (laughs) And it's just a small rural town in Georgetown. Um, I didn't know I was going to be a historian in high school, but by the time I was done uh, with my undergraduate degree, I clearly uh, knew that my interest was in um, history and uh, political ideas. But why this book? 
Well, this book began actually when I decided that my subject area of study in graduate school no longer sustained enough interest for me. I actually started out graduate school as an early Americanist, uh, looking particularly at the Federalist and, and Hamilton's crew. And I decided that my interest in contemporary politics was just growing too much and was becoming too important to me to be focusing the rest of my intellectual attention in my research on something that was that far back and uh, that difficult uh, to, to apply to contemporary politics. So I actually switched to 20th century American history. And when I was choosing a subject to uh, turn into my dissertation, uh, a kind of natural interest would have been uh, the new right. But as I told my dissertation advisor at the time, I don't want to become incredibly angry every time I read my primary sources. Um, so I said, well, let's look at, um, you know, the the flip side of that, or at least the supposedly flip side of that during the period the new right is emerging, which was, you know, post-war liberalism and in particular the Great Society. And what's funny is I started this project looking for the lines of overlap between the mainstream liberalism of the great society and the left uh, thinking that I would, would, would find some sort of missed opportunities for, uh, you know, further collaboration or further left, um, left directions in post-war liberalism. And I found the opposite and that's became the dissertation and eventually the book. Well, your book is really a very strong critique of liberalism that we don't see very often because more it seems like most historians uh, tend to be in the liberal uh, camp. We there are some leftist historians, but most of them uh, kind of believe that liberalism needs to be true to its principles. So if we just return back to those principles, you know, we'll be fine. Now, uh, liberalism is about equality and freedom for everyone, supposedly. What? So what is wrong with liberalism? Uh, liberalism is an ideology that is steeped in an individualistic ethos that when it was emerging primarily served white men. And in particular, right, white men that had some chance or access to the means of upward mobility. And it has never shed these qualities. It was crafted to justify a, a new social structure, which is, I think most of us would agree, better than what came before. And there is value to individualism, but liberalism as it developed historically and as it still exists today, still emphasizes it far too much and does not connect its principles, and some of them are admirable, I recognize that, to an understanding of how social structure and power actually works on the ground. So there's this disconnect. We can say all day that it's about liberty and equality, but if you maintain that indiv super individualistic focus that doesn't look at how social structures work on the ground and how power is applied unequally, even when the principles are supposedly um, supposed to be, you know, non-discriminatory, then you end up with uh, a system like we have now, or we had in the 18th century, or we had in the late 19th century during the Gilded Age. So how did, uh, how did capitalism 
get tied up with liberalism. Does liberalism on its own imply, you're talking especially about individualism, does that automatically imply capitalism? Historically, yes. And this is a really important point. I'm glad you asked the question. How does, to ask, how does capitalism get tied up with liberalism, to me is asking, uh, is to assume is to assume a certain frame in the question itself because liberalism is the political theory that emerges with capitalism to make sense of capitalism to justify capitalism to make it seem natural to you know the populations that lived under uh it's it's development. So it's not that they ever existed separately. Uh, they're expressions of the same historical movement. Now, that doesn't mean that they're always identical or they never come in tension. In fact, one of the most interesting things about liberalism is the way that it has these uh, officially these uh, values like equality that are that, you know, it says it has, but that comes clashing all the time with the economic system that that gave it birth and capitalism but um they're not they're not separate uh, you know um to, to think of them even as entangled again suggests this view of understanding how ideas come about that is disconnected in in my opinion from from you know reality i guess i don't know how else to say the history of how how things emerge right yeah, it seems to me that um, one of the places they would be connected would be the idea, you know, of natural rights, uh, assuming, um, you know, proper, uh, absolute property rights. Right. So that would be like one place where liberalism and capitalism kind of uh, kind of come together. Absolutely. And to give an example from the time period of my book, you see those things start to have tension. Um with each other when, you know, the Civil Rights Act is going on and people are writing Senator Douglas of Chicago saying my property rights um, are more sacred than the rights of these black people to have access to housing in my neighborhood. And I think that liberalism is really bad at dealing with that kind of conflict. It doesn't know what to do because it is too deeply committed to the notion of property rights. So how did racism, which is, is, is something that people would, uh, would find, I think, uh, interesting or a little odd or not wondering, how did racism get become a founding assumption of liberalism? So that's a great question. And there's a lot of really good work being done on this right now, actually. Um, for example, there is a book, I cannot remember the author's right uh, name at the moment, called Bind Us Apart, that looks at how in the American case, these classically liberal figures we think of with that classical liberal tradition like Jefferson are actually articulating the idea of segregation as the only solution to racial difference in this republic that they're building. Now, if you want to go even further back than that, again, it's not something that you know follows a line of, of clear logic because ideologies don't work like that. They emerge historically as solutions to problems on hand. And liberalism and capitalism emerge in the context of transatlantic slave trade, in the context of increased racializations of different populations. And liberalism doesn't go, you know, doesn't transform into, uh, you know, 
racial egalitarianism or just go away because it can't deal with this conflict. It comes up with all these fancy ways uh, to square that circle, to say we're dedicated to liberty and equality. But, you know, Black and and Native American people are, are really different in some s- fundamental ways. So I think something that historians and particularly intellectual historians maybe too often do or political theorists is they try to find, you know, these these uh, coherent systems where this makes sense. It is contradictory, but it's contradictory because historical needs, okay, created those contradictions. They built them into liberalism at the time. So one of the words, one of the terms, you have a lot of terms in your, in your like capitalism, liberalism, racism, these isms that you deal with. There's one that was, I was just sort of surprised to see, and that was pluralism. Isn't pluralism a good thing? Don't we talk about our pluralistic society? Why has pluralism a bad thing? How did it become a bad thing? Was it a good thing? Was it ever a good thing? So when I use the term pluralism, and I noticed that this uh, term was is bouncing around a lot in a connotation that's far more positive and not referring specifically to what I'm discussing in my book. I use that term to refer to a specific body of thought in the post-war period that's coming out of sociology, a little bit of history, and political science definitely as well. It actually originates in, in the political science field that has this concept of American political institutions specifically that's saying they have, they basically hacked how to have a just system of power without becoming either too far to the left or too far to the right. That's what they believe. And all of these different interests are able to participate in the political process and through log rolling, negotiation, elections, all the things that you do, right, to try to nominate and influence your representatives pretty much anybody who wants to have a voice in the American political system can do so and can make a difference. And that is the body of thought about the American political system that is the major um, viewpoint, right, of the post-war liberal era, of liberals themselves in particular. So that's what I I am referring to when I say pluralism. There was a couple of phrases on hand that I could choose, but I went with that one because it's the most associated in the literature with that body of thought. Um, It's most often referred to as pluralism. So it's a very specific thing. So you're talking about about political, like a political uh, pluralism. Basically, anyone who who wants to avail themselves to the political system can participate, which is what we still are being told, okay, right? Today, yes, it today is. Today we're being told everybody needs to go out and vote because we all vote. Right, correct. We all have a voice. It's our vote. And we still believe that. Yes, we still believe it very deeply. And I find it a little frustrating uh, because of the problems that existed with the idea then, the problems that still exist now. There's almost not almost, there's very clearly a shaming process that goes on uh, towards people who are skeptical of the vote as sort of the end all, you know, be all, and of people who dare not vote, right? There is scorn heaped on the heads of people who do not, who who have lost so, so much faith in political institutions that they do not vote. And so, yes, this is an absolute point of faith that is still it will, with us. Par- partly is that we believe that the vote itself is democracy and the vote is not democracy. It is only one of many means to democratic rule. Right. Absolutely. And you see the exact same belief creating this conflict in 
the time period of the Great Society, these community action programs I talk about, because when some poor people's organizations start doing things like interrupting Sergeant Shriver's speech to heckle him and give him a hard time about what the Great Society and the war on poverty is not actually doing for them, people like Sergeant Shriver, Daniel Patrick Moyhan, Seymour Lipset, David Reisman, all of them say, this is not democratic. Right. This is this is actually the opposite of democracy. So the direct action techniques and all of these alternative forms of participating in a democracy or your democracy are actually labeled as dangerous to democracy by this group that I refer to as the pluralist. So the other the other term that I think was really interesting, I think, to our audience is for you to talk a little bit about the cultural poverty idea in its origins and how liberalism you know, grab that idea and what they did with it. And what is the problem with the culture of poverty? Because the idea, of course, uh, if you think about it, you know, if you were, were raised in an impoverished situation where you don't have enough education, you don't have enough food, you don't have enough house, adequate housing, that that is going to create a certain sort of psychological uh, point of view, a, a life experience that can people can people will carry for a long time unless they get out of that situation. So can you talk about the culture of poverty, its origins, what's wrong with it, how the liberals used it? Sure. So I'll start with its origins. Its origins are primarily uh, amongst liberals in the post-war period in uh, the 1950s and 1960s. There's some influences that go even further back, but for the sake of brevity, I'll leave that out. Um, also, though, some leftist input. Oscar Lewis, who was a Marxist, a Marxist sociologist, actually coined the phrase. And Michael Harrington, who is a socialist or was a socialist, wrote The Other America, which really popularized the phrase. Now, the problem with the culture of poverty is... At its worst, it's overt victim blaming. This is the type of culture of poverty we might associate with the contemporary Republican Party. Okay, you are lazy, uh, you are damaged, uh, you are um, hateful. Uh, we often see Black Lives Matter activists, right, described as hateful towards the police, for example. The problem is you. Now, at its more gentler liberal manifestation, it is a looking away from the underlying causes and instead looking at those symptoms. As you pointed out there in your question, it's not like symptoms don't exist. It's not like there's not consequences to people personally if they grow up impoverished. But what the liberal form of culture of poverty does, this is, okay, we need to give uh, these people coping mechanisms. You know, maybe now the big thing will be CBT. Let's give poor people a whole bunch of CBT and everything will be fine. Um, we need to give them access to therapy, access to political training so they know how to deal with their problems. We need to uh, give them job training so that they'll be competitive in the market. What it doesn't do is like say, oh my God, the market sucks, right? The job market is only uh, giving them low paid wage labor with no security and benefits. What it doesn't do is say, oh my God, of course they don't have access to any uh, mental health, uh, you know, 
resources because nobody on the state, local, or federal level is spending the money or setting up to do so. What it doesn't do is go, oh my gosh, look at the racial disparities in incarceration, in arrest rates, et cetera, et cetera. So it looks away from racial capitalism, what I call racial capitalism in the book, to in one way or another, even if it's sympathetic with these people, still define their deficiencies as the problem that needs to be solved instead of the injustice social structures that burdened them with these so-called deficiencies in the first place. So basically, you're saying that liberals are uh, basically avoiding structural racism and applying Band-Aids. Okay, so... uh, how did how did liberals, you know, this liberalism of the there's different prog- programs that you talk about. You talk about the war on poverty, the great society. You talk about the community action programs. How did all this sort of set a stage for uh, the new right? I mean, it seems like you're like you're a lumper. OK, <laughs> I am a lumper. It is true. <laughs> I'm, yeah, it's, it's, it's often not um, something proclaimed with pride, but I have to say I'm a lumper. Um, so this is a, another really important point. What the book is not arguing is that post-war liberalism caused the new right, right? Without post-war liberalism, well, I don't know. I'm not going to, you know, that then we get into way too speculative zones and we're talking about a country that doesn't look you know, familiar with the historical record. But what I am arguing is that post-war liberalism provided a stage or a field, if we want to switch metaphors here, a field that is very hospitable, fertilized, maybe the soil for the rise of new right because of some of the problems that it doesn't address and won't. And because of some of the similarities that it has with conservatism, because conservatism and liberalism are two different philosophies of how to deal with capitalistic societies, right? But they're both ideologies of capitalism. So liberals say, let's spend some federal money on trying to provide job training for uh disadvantaged people so they can compete in the market more effectively, but they still don't talk about the market itself as a source of injustice or as the fundamental problem. Conservatives say, ah, screw those people, you know, let's give them some good Donner Party conservatism and make life really hard for them, or just, you know, let them pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, the the best will rise to the top. Maybe let's try to make sure that, you know, they have traditional families, but not if it requires us expending too much um, or interfering too much in the market. So they have different solutions. But if you start with this notion like you did in the culture of poverty, that there is something wrong with poor people, well, the right is going to see that and says, yeah, exactly. And let's just run further with this and talk about everything that's wrong with these poor people. And let's make it uh, colored with with racial uh, stereotypes and animosity and that's exactly what happens and liberalism has no effective response to that because it it can't because it can't go to a truly anti-racist or anti-capitalist place to make any strong response to that so it's just stuck kind of wringing its hands saying well you know let's try to make them a little bit less miserable and give them a few more opportunities so basically basically liberalism and conservatism today is very much based on the individual and the positive 
aspect of that, of course, uh, one way would be that conservatives would say private charity, uh, me individually helping another person individually is the solution rather than big government programs like the liberals would say. Uh, right? Uh, but they're both based on this sort of individualistic sort of view, of a, uh, and, which is really, I mean, like it's the core DNA of America. Okay. So let me ask you, let's talk about um, what have, what, do you, what is contention? What is it that you're arguing that you think historians, particularly intellectual historians, most of them uh, I read a lot of them. They seem to be mostly liberals. Okay, there's some leftists in there, but most of them are liberal. A liberal. What are they missing um, in looking at the twenty, the period you're looking at, that the Cold War period, that post-war period? What are they missing about liberalism? So I like how you phrase the question because itself brings up a question. What are they missing? I am sure that they're not missing anything in terms of what the factual information that they know and the sources that they've read, right? I read, they've read all this stuff too. They've read, you know, Moyhan and, and Lipset and, and oodles and bundles of stuff from many different sources, social, political history of the same time period. And yet they keep coming to this conclusion though, that um, I don't understand. So I'll kind of, I'm going to answer this by, by giving an example of how there is a celebratory historiography and journalistic uh, body of work about Daniel Patrick Moyhan. And when I started out on this project, you know, I'd heard about him before, of course, the Moyhan Report, okay. But, um, you know, I, I didn't have strong feelings one way or the other. And the celebratory stuff is all about how, you know, Moyhan got it right. And um, he, you know, wasn't racist. He just recognized the importance of family stability. And if only liberals had listened to him. So there's often this missed opportunity kind of quality to it. But then I went, I started reading Moyhan himself. I'm not going to mince words here. This stuff is awful. It is awful. Um, the things he says are awful. The ideas that he promotes lack coherence. His writing is awful. I don't know why people think that he's a good writer. Um, that's neither here nor there. But And it's it's deeply sexist and racist. And honestly, if you ask me what they are missing, it's so it's more so that they they refuse to see. There it's it's not that it's not there, but they believe that they can extract from liberalism the good stuff and that it's not fundamentally attached to the ugly stuff. And I say if you look at this body of thought and you look at the history it's attached to, it is attached to the ugly stuff and you can't wash it clean. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, when you're talking about Monaghan, um, you know, I have this uh, kind of saying that I say, you can't argue with the dead, <laughs> that when mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about somebody like Unfortunately, Monaghan, yeah. <laughs> he's, you know, he, 
he's a man of his period. And so we have to understand his what he's saying, his words, his what he writes, his attitudes within a context of a country, a nation, a culture at a particular point in time. Mm-hmm. So are we uh, now we feel like we, you know, we know better. OK, we understand racism better, sexism better, you know, and we can look back and say, well, we, they were really bad people. So in the context, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm re- this is a true question. I mean, I think we have to be yeah. careful, right, to to see them right. in their in their time and what was going comparison to what else was going on. Did he have? Was he making any movement forward at all? Not, not really. Not Moyahan in particular, okay. in my opinion. Okay, you think he solidifies liberal racism in some way? Absolutely. I think he he legitimized a, a a way of of blaming black people for for their own oppression. Okay. All right. So let me let's talk about something else that's kind of it's here about how we write history. One thing is can we study one of the things that you're making a claim is that we can study history from the silences. Yes. Um is it all right if I respond quickly yes, to your Yes, go ahead. Okay. Um so this is also an important point, right? This this concern that we are um, applying, right, a modern perspective and judging people uh, of the past. So I would have two things to say to that. First, yeah, of course we're judging them, right? Um, we need to understand them first, but ultimately, if we're not going to learn something about what to do and what not to do from history, then you maybe you're an antiquitarian and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not my understanding of what historians do. If we're not going to understand lessons and where wrong turns and right turns were made, then what are we doing? So yes, we judge them. We all do. Even if we deny it, get over it. Um, the second thing would be that, yes, Moyhan is a product of his time. Absolutely. I totally agree. So are all these other people. So why though, does that not influence our assessment of that of the idea of liberalism at the time then right why do we want to say well moyhan was a product of his time and so the real liberalism isn't the racism and the sexism that's in his work wait wait no 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 you can't do that right because you want to have your cake and you want to eat it too you want to use that that point of we're judging him from a modern perspective to focus on the stuff that you in a modern period, consider as good and to define that as the real liberalism or the stuff, right, that we that we actually inherited and look away, right, from all the sexism and racism. So I actually think often when people do that, when they when they express that concern, they're committing the exact analytical mistake that they're pointing out. Okay, so is there a difference between Moneyham the man? Uh, would you consider him a racist, or do you consider him a man who just uh, uh, promoted racist ideas? I would prefer to consider him a man that promoted racist ideas because I think that's a lot more helpful. And it gets us away from this individualistic, moralistic mode of understanding racism, right? Racism isn't about what's in your heart and what's in your soul. I don't care what was in Moyhan's heart and soul. I care about what he did. And what he did was contribute, right, to a very damaging system of thought. So let's go back to that question I asked before about can we study history from the silences? Like it's it's sort of like the subtext, you know, the subtext. Uh huh. Yeah, and as I argue, right in the book, I absolutely think that we can. I think that it is important what is not said, if and when, right? That is right in front of your face, right? If that is uh, a huge and visible and important part of what's going on, 
in, in the subject you're discussing. So in the book, I talk about how these pluralist thinkers, before the civil rights movement really gets going, don't talk about race. They make these sweeping proclamations of the, you know, super awesomeness of the American political tradition. They don't mention slavery. They don't mention Jim Crow. They don't mention, you know, Native American genocide. Uh, they don't mention even, you know, bloody Kansas or any of the uh, extreme moments of not compromising, of not finding, right, a solution uh, between different groups. So I do not think that you can just wave that away with with a wave of hand. Well, it wasn't on their mind. Clearly, it wasn't. And there has to be a reason for it, because it's not like it wasn't there. And it wasn't even like they didn't know about it. Now, how did, uh, how did the Cold War and uh, the post-war affluence, you know, the 1950s, blind liberals to racism? And what was their assumption about, about America at that point? They, they were making, they were projecting into the future, uh, because there was so much affluence. Uh, what would can you talk about that? Yeah, um, l- let me know if I if I didn't understand your question. But the Moynihan report, oh, I have to go back. I always have to talk okay. about it because That's it's just such a good example. Well, uh, yeah, it's it's written in 1965, right? 1965, and Moynihan saying, "Look, black people have equal rights now because of the Civil Rights Act and and the soon to be passed Voting Rights Act." And yet they're still not doing very well. And in fact, situations are getting worse. How could that possibly be? Well, let's look at their families. They have a lot of strong mothers in their families. And you know that that makes for pathological children. So it must be the family. This is where the the sexism comes in so strongly in Moyhan's work. Now, this is hilarious that he's saying this in 1965 because it's not a mystery, right? It's not. It's you don't have to go digging around for complex theories of matriarchy or a matrifocal families to explain uh, the situation because this is after not only right a hundred plus years of or a hundred years, excuse me, seventy maybe if you want to be picky about it of Jim Crow, but this is after decades of urban renewal that has constructed these ghettos through redlining that concentrates poor and black people, both poor and black people in very small areas and subjects them to uh, a system of surveillance and, and, um, and police brutality, which was not as bad as it is now or would become in following decades, but it was, it was still a major problem. Of course they're poor and they're doing badly and they're not doing better, right? They didn't benefit nearly as much from the New Deal. They didn't benefit nearly as much from uh, these post-war right spending programs. And in fact, they were harmed by it because it was used to build the suburbs and to kick people like that lived in Chavez Ravine, for example, out of their homes. So this is how, right, liberalism is is clearly participating in the looking away form of racism, Um because it just re- it just refuses to look at what's in front of its face. How much of it was a uh, fear of black people, poor people, that they would be radicalized because we've got this Cold War going on and we're thinking, you know, communists are going to come in here and they're going to radicalize these people. How much was a defensive move? Um, that's a good question. Uh, before the civil rights movement really gets underway, I don't think that's operating much in the mind of like these pluralists that I talk about 
because they just just don't they really just don't see black people very much to be honest um but once the civil rights movement is 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 clearly underway and is shaking up the country then that becomes a very real fear in particular uh right black power is like the worst nightmares <laughs> of, of uh these liberals come to light you have a group like the black panthers which are avowedly marxist and yeah they're absolutely terrified that something like this is going to tear apart the United States. Moyahan says in a speech that we must prepare for the onset of terrorism. So uh, it's a it's a big part of it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So now a black radicals, like you were just talking about, uh, responded uh, one to one thing was the ineffectiveness of, of programs, you know, community action programs, uh, all these programs the federal government came out with to remedy inequality that didn't work. Why didn't these programs work? I mean, it just seems like, you know, we're, we've got people today asking for some of these programs to be revitalized. Right. Um, so two things, two reasons why they didn't work. Number one, there's never a serious commitment to them in terms of spending. Um, we can, of course, throw numbers out there that sound like, well, wow, that's millions, billions of dollars. That's a lot of money spent on poverty. But compared to the military budget and its pennies, right? Um, nothing along the lines of the freedom budget, right? Proposed by Bayonard Rustin, for example. Um, nothing along those lines. Um, second, what these programs do in the first place, insofar as they do get funding, it's just very, very limited, right? Look at mobilization for youth. If you look at uh, people talking about what most of what they did, they're known as one of the most radical community action programs, and indeed they were, because a lot of people on that project decided to actually help black and brown people try to cause a ruckus to get some help uh, with the problems they were facing. But most of it is, is, is social service dispensary stuff. Okay, Most of it is you know, things like um, supplementary education, job training. Um, nowadays, a program like that would probably have some mental health services. It's more of the Band-Aids. And you can put as many Band-Aids on a gushing wound as you want. It actually will help a little bit. Uh, poverty was alleviated a little bit in the late 60s to early 70s before we know what's happened since. But um, it's not going to fundamentally solve a problem, right? Uh, because you're not addressing the fundamental problem. So the welfare state is all kind of implicated in this. Tell, Can you kind of connect... Um, the, you know, uh, great, yeah, can you connect the whole idea, the rise of the welfare state, the New Deal, and the Great Society, and these programs? I mean, what, was was the New Deal better, a better deal? Did the New Deal, uh, you know, start falling apart? What happened there? Was the New, was the new Deal a better deal yeah. than the Great Society? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the New Deal is is much more substantial than the Great Society ever was. The only exception I would make to that statement would be Medicaid, Medicare. Right. That's significant. Um, but other than that, um, yeah, the New Deal is is just far. It's a far bigger step uh, in the right direction than the Great Society ever was. As far as what happens to it, I mean, I don't know if you really want me to go into that whole narrative of the rise of the new right and all of that. Are we talking about in the post-war period, uh, liberals were retreating from, from the New Deal? 
what is that what they were doing i wouldn't put it exactly like that because if i'm going to go based on right my research most of these pluralists right that i'm reading are supportive of the new deal absolutely because they think that's right the hack that's uh you know mostly market capitalism with a good healthy amount of welfare state but not too much welfare state right because then you you get into communism right they they think that's the middle ground uh the vital center if you will in schlesinger's words right that holds everything together but what they do become is very complacent and again they engage in this looking away from what even the new deal you know, even how scandalous, did not solve, which was quite a lot. So in in one place, I think it's Lipset. Ugh, I might be wrong about that. It might be Reisman. But one of these fellows says, you know, there's 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 pockets, there are puddles of poverty uh, still around, but um, th- they're going to solve themselves basically if we just continue on this course. And they don't, clearly don't understand the New Deal itself as affirmative action for white people, right? As, as um, it's, it's smartly been called. Uh, so um, they, they don't at all foresee, right? That once the civil rights movement threatens uh, the consensus of white supremacy that the New Deal relies upon, that it's all gonna fall apart. They don't see that at all. Well, what's interesting to me is it seems like these people are kind of in a dream. They really believe in the abundance and the promise of America, okay? That it's all oh, yeah. that's going to work out, that it's, things are getting better all the time, and it's all the boats are rising. Are they in some way privileged victims of an ideology that they themselves do not fully understand? Oh, <laughs> absolutely. So, you know... They believe in America. And, and oh, so, yeah, they believe in America. So, in a lot of, so some of your listeners might say, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> um, <laughs> you're, you're, uh, I like these questions, Leanne, because you're pushing me to, to the most uh, expected leftist statements I can make. The problem with that is uh, America then and now is a system that's structured on white supremacy and capitalism, uh, what I I like to call racial capitalism, right? Because they're really tied up together. And that engineers in many different forms, right? Before it was Jim Crow and now it's mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow, uh, systems of of, uh, systemic ongoing uh, injustice and inequality. And they did not see it. You're absolutely right that they didn't see it. And you're absolutely right that they were true believers. And I would also like to highlight your previous statement that they were um, participating. I don't know if they were victims because they benefited from it, but yeah, they were participants in an yeah. ideology. They did not fully understand. They were privileged. Yeah, they absolutely. They were privileged victims. <laughs> if there can be such a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I don't even know if they're victims though, because the only form of, of suffering that they that they experienced was sort of the depression of seeing the New Deal fall. Well, also train, existential but. existential suffering from the fact that they uh, they were afraid of what was going to happen to this mob of you know poor people. Okay, yeah. so you know they're yes. they're at risk. Okay, they're going to rise up against us. There's an existential crisis here. Uh-huh. Okay, so I'm going to ask you some now. I'm going to go to the really juicy question. Uh, these are just implications of your book. Okay, so uh, the, in the is the American experiment, which is a liberal experiment from its founding. Okay, we're talking about you've talked a lot about uh, in your book about structures. 
that they're not addressing structures, but can you address structures without addressing the foundations? If it is, is, it, is the American experiment then a failed project from the get-go? And if it, if it is, does it require, really, your, the implications of your argument, does it require that we dismantle our current constitution and rewrite it? Absolutely. Or can we just, could, or we continue to apply, you know, piecemeal remedies? So this is my approach to this question. I will take piecemeal remedies if it's all I can get. Okay? I am not, a, I'm not somebody of the left who says uh, we should have voted against or pushed against Obamacare because it isn't what, what we should have, right? Universal It's not good healthcare. enough. It's not good enough. Right. I don't, I don't want to make the perfect, the enemy of the good. So I will take those piecemeal things, right? If that's all that we can get. But we should be demanding everything. We should be demanding more. And yes, I absolutely do think we should rewrite the Constitution, particularly well, I mean, the Senate, for example. Just look at how the Senate is proportioned. It's it's um, it's a you know tragedy. It's a, it's a farce of democracy. So absolutely. Um, as for the American experiment, I mean, the, the very way that 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 question is phrased isn't really familiar to me because what makes it American, right? Um, and what makes it not American? Uh, are we talking about the continuation of this state, you know, this nation state we call America? Yeah, quite honestly, Lily, and I don't really care that much about that, right? Yeah, I'm, um, yeah, because- I'm, ta- I'm talking about the liberal, uh, the, the attempt to build a nation on liberalism and liberal principles. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, that- okay, well, obviously, I think that's it. That ultimately w- w- is an experiment doomed to failure. Yeah, if... Um, Absolutely, because uh, liberalism again has many nice qualities or, or you know admirable principles, but they uh, um, attempt to apply them in an economic structure, capitalism, uh, that uh, produces in many ways the opposite. Right? Uh, liberalism is supposed to value equality and freedom, and those two experiences are something right that. Um, many black and brown people in the United States would love to have and would have loved to have, and many poor white people as well. Okay, it's, it's, it's particularly bad along lines of race, but it also uh, damages uh, uh, white people as well. So, well, you know that if we, if we, yeah, if, yeah, it's if we have a, it's a pipe dream. If we have a, it, <laughs> I would describe it as pipe fine. If we, if we uh, decide, if, if the uh, people decide they want a constitutional convention, you realize that that's probably going to be a really bloody situation because the country already is divided, very deeply divided about what they think America has to be. And I'm not advocating for it or against it. I'm just saying, hey, if we really did have a constitutional convention to rewrite the founding documents, okay, in a totally different way that takes into account all your critiques, Wow, we would have a mess. So, what is the what is in your analysis? What's our hope here? Because, I mean, can't is there hope? Yep. Is there hope? So, yes, there's hope. There's always hope. But right now, in this particular political and historical moment, not a lot for any any uh, within our lifetimes change. I don't. I don't think I will live to see right uh, the the true tackling of any of these issues that I've highlighted. So it's it's part of, if you will, the existential suffering of being on the left. Actually, is recognizing this partly because 
exactly what you pointed out. Um, there most likely would be right a mess or bloodshed. And I'm not categorically opposed to violence um, any at all times. But I, I think that it's something to be taken very seriously. And more importantly, the reason you would have so much bloodshed is because not enough American people are on board with this project. And I don't believe in a, a minority of people right, uh, violently trying to change the situation because it's not democratic. At the end of the day, I'm a Democrat, small D, right, obviously not Democratic Party member. Um, and we have to we have to wait until we have enough people uh, who who want who want to join in this project because otherwise um, we're we're forcing something right uh, on a population and that's going to set us up for for even m- more awful things if somehow we succeed you know um, so yeah. Uh, in the meantime, what I view myself and other leftists as doing is keeping the tradition alive and trying to capitalize on every little opening that we can find and, and refusing to go along with mainstream um, rhetoric and politics, um, you know, in some sort of short term gain. Because if, if we are ever going to see something, we have to think longer than our lifetimes and we have to create a community, a historical community for the people who will come after us. No, um, the thing is, you know, I think part of the problem, I think the problem of structures, again, is the problem of foundations and the American people believe in America. They believe in their founding documents and institutions, even as imperfect and horrible as they may be, people still insist mm-hmm. That fundamentally, and we hear presidents say this all the time, uh, after president, America is fundamentally good. Our institutions are good. They're solid. We just need to believe in America. Uh, And as long as people, that's an ideology that's just greater than liberalism. It's it's on the right, on on the left. It's everywhere. You know, I mean, I'm talking about Mm -hmm. uh, Democrats and Republicans all will give that same speech, you know, Mm-hmm, and absolutely. as long as that uh, belief is there, then there's no possibility for something new because you've got to have you've got to lose confidence in something to really begin to imagine something different. Right. right. Okay. Absolutely. So yep. where is liberalism today? Well, I mean, I guess uh, if you want to look at how it's manifesting in in political struggle it within within the democratic party liberalism is kind of having a bit of a internal internal crisis right because you have people who want to see it go in a more genuinely left liberal what i I think it's fairly called left liberal direction right who want bernie sander elizabeth warren somebody like that heading the ticket and on the other hand, though, then the party still remains controlled by um, people who would be conservative by the standards of the folks I talk about in my book. Okay? Uh, the party is still controlled by these sort of third way, right, uh, Clintonite uh, liberals. Yeah, it seems like it seems like liberalism is very uh, beleaguered right now. It's not very popular. I mean, people either on the left or on the right, they both, you know, don't like them. And they are having a hard hard time justifying their existence or why we continue to to follow them. And so, you know, you, once in a while you'll read an article and there'll be some defense of liberalism, you know, why liberalism is still the hope for America. Right. You know, that kind of yep. thing. <laughs> um, True believers, those no. folks. <laughs> I, 
Yeah, total true believers. Okay, so uh, Robin, you've been very generous with your time, and I want to ask you one final question. And this is, what is, you know, who do you hope will read your book? And what is the takeaway? What is it that you want um, people to do with it? And what's what are the opportunities for the reader? Well, is it just because it's when you read it, it's just like, oh, there, you know, there's no hope. <laughs> you know, this is just awful. I mean, I wrote a soul crusher. I mean. Yeah, it's a soul crusher. <laughs> so what do you want the reader to do? And what do you want him to take away? Or to at least, what is the big question you want them to have in their mind when they're listening to what's going on right now? Right. So my sort of imagined typical reader, right, uh, is going to be a leftist liberal. Okay, somebody, a, a Bernie supporter, for example, right? Maybe an Elizabeth Warren supporter, whatever, who still has that faith, though. In liberalism, right? Who hasn't quite taken their critique all the way. And the book is trying to nudge them in that direction, right? It's trying to whisper, join us, right? <laughs> Leave it behind. It's okay. You can let go of it because there is something, there's a tradition and an idea and uh, a vision that is better and might actually bring justice on the other side, even though, as you pointed out, not within their lifetime. So I guess that's really depressing. But so it's trying to whisper to those people. Now, if by some chance, which will, which will most likely be rare, somebody who is not, you know, pretty politically formed, pretty politically engaged, um, and not on the left side of liberalism picks up this book, I would like them to take away a new perspective of the political spectrum where they go, huh, wow, okay, so yeah, liberalism and conservatism aren't complete opposites. Actually, they're not totally antagonistic. They're different uh, ways of responding to problems within a capitalist framework. I told you I was going to ask, that was the last question I was going to ask, but I just thought of something else. In reading your book, there are a lot of critiques that you make of liberals that conservatives have taken up as the critique of liberalism, particularly racism. You know, uh, conservatives will accuse liberals of being racist. Sure, but in a very, very different it's very, way. Yeah, right? I know. I know. For very I know. <laughs> but it's just kind of interesting because they'll say, yes, liberals don't think black people can, you know, pick themselves up by their bootstraps. So they're going to do all these government programs to keep them dependent. OK, they're all going to be in this sort of government plantation, you know, dependent on the government. And, uh, and that, that's racist. OK, that's really interesting right. because I think that would make it it's, an interesting. It is a book for the next. And sorry, this ahead. would make a follow-up book for you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's very that's very creative, right? Conservatives are very, they have great in ideological jujitsu. Um, but what they're doing there, if you notice, is they're they're calling attention to the ultimate value of individualism, right. right? And they're saying we're more true to individualism than liberals are because liberals don't believe in the power of your individualism, right? right? And liberalism can't really respond to that because it's not going to, you know, come out and say, well, actually, the vast majority of us uh, have, you know, our futures more or less uh, largely, you know, uh, predicted for us by social conditions, right? They're not going to say that because that they have that central faith as well. So that's actually a good example of why liberals can't respond to some of these more hardline conservative uh, critiques. But the other thing I just want to say more broadly to your point is I recognize that a lot of people, uh, you know, who are horrified by the Trump administration, who are horrified by uh, the joke and, and the basically white supremacist organization that the Republican Party has become, um, I understand that they might be very queasy and they might say, why are, why is leftists spending all of their time 
you know, bashing liberalism, because isn't that better than conservatism? Well, yes, it is better. But here's the thing. I don't think we can ever get past conservatism if we don't recognize that liberalism is not the solution to it. So because of the things they have in common, we actually do have to do this critique of liberalism because the overlap is too substantial between the two. And you cannot just blame Republicans. You cannot just blame conservatives because there is a weakness in the ideology they're attacking that they're taking advantage of. And if you don't recognize those weaknesses and deal with them, then you're just swatting at... at um, the symptoms of a larger ideological problem that runs deeper than, than traditional left or right. Okay. Well, thank you, Robin. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This has been a special edition in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger. 